Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. And in Australia, we, we eat too much meat. The average Australian eats 110 kilograms of meat per person per year. Um, in Asian societies, the average is 20 kilograms of meat per person per year. And from a purely health perspective, um, there's a good case for eating no meat. Um, but at the very least, we should be eating not 110 kilos of meat, eating something more like 20 kilograms of meat per person per year. So that's the health side. Um, from an environmental perspective... Those are the inspiring words of Michael Fox, co-founder and CEO of Fable Food Co. Stick around to the end of the episode to hear Michael's compelling five-minute call to arms. Fable Food Co. are playing a critical role in transitioning people across to tasty and sustainable meat alternatives. They are currently using mushrooms to great effect, with their plant-based braised beef recently launching into more than 600 Woolworth stores across Australia. Michael has had an incredible and at times testing career as an entrepreneur, having been co-founder and CEO of Shoes of Prey, and he's now an investor and mentor at Startmate on top of running Fable Food Co. I was really lucky to connect with Michael and his amazing career and current work on Twitter. It was a nice twist of fate that he also happened to be a Humans of Purpose listener. This is a wide-ranging conversation, but key themes are the startup journey, missteps along the way, making non-meat appealing to more people, living a more ethical lifestyle and understanding, and changing customer behavior. A short bit of housekeeping before we get started. Humans of Purpose is now 100% community-powered, with our generous Patreon supporters enabling me to cover the majority of my monthly costs of production. This week, we're really pleased to welcome Jasmine to our Patreon family. Welcome, Jasmine, and thanks again to Social Enterprise Humanism, who last week became our first organizational Patreon supporter. Humanism are doing some amazing work to solve global poverty through the production of custom tote bags, t-shirts, and lanyards. Just head to humanismglobal.com to learn more. As always, a big thank you to our Patreon community, including Clyde, Susie, Kynan, Deb, Sue K, Carmen, Misha, Jasmine, Sue P, Joel H, Levi, Jules, Sally, Will, B, Lyndon, Olivia, Joe, McCartan, Joel F, and Stuart. You can become a monthly Patreon supporter today for as little as the price of a single cup of coffee at $4. Of course, you can support us at whatever level you like. I highly recommend checking out the Humans Plus option for some amazing behind-the-scenes access and ability to be connected to our podcast guests. We'll be soon running our first live Zoomcast with our Patreon audience able to log in and attend, which is sure to be a lot of fun too. If you're looking to share an aligned message about a product or service that our listeners may enjoy, do check out our Rocketeer tiers and Spaceman tiers on Patreon and learn more by going to patreon.com slash humansofpurpose or clicking the link in our show notes. We recorded this conversation with Michael via Zoom a few weeks ago, and I think you're going to love this conversation as much as I did. So absolutely thrilled to be with you today, Michael. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Mike. Really, really thrilled to be chatting to you. Well, you've accomplished so much. Um, I want to talk about Fable Foods, obviously, but as we do on Humans of Purpose uh, with every person we speak to, we'd love to hear a little bit about your journey um, to Fable uh, in your own words, and then maybe we can um, jump down some, a few rabbit holes from there. Yeah, so I um, grew up in Queensland, um, eating a lot of a lot of meat as uh, as Queenslanders do, um, and yeah, studied uh, at University of Queensland, studied commerce and law, uh, went into worked as a lawyer very briefly, realised that wasn't for me. I went to Super Retail Group for a couple of years, doing a graduate program there. Um, worked at Google doing advertising sales for two and a half years. 
then co-founded a, um, a fashion technology business called Shoes of Prey um, and did that for the last decade. Uh, that was, yeah, startup roller coaster, uh, uh, Shoes of Prey, and, and we, can, we can go into that if you like. Yeah, we'd we'll, we'll love, love to hear um, um, a bit about up with Shoes of Prey. Yeah, no, sorry, keep going and then maybe we'll come back to Shoes of Prey because I think that'd be a really interesting discussion point too. Yeah, cool. Um, so then uh, finished up with Shoes of Prey 18 months ago. Uh, took six months off, kind of needed a bit of a break after after Shoes of Prey and my wife's Danish so we went over to Denmark for six months, um, had our second child was born over there, took, yeah, took a break and just um, had some time off so ended up reading about, you know, wherever my intellectual curiosity took me and I'd gone vegetarian four and a half years ago for kind of, for me, kind of ethical, environmental and health reasons in that order um, and I hadn't really thought much more of it other than it was a kind of personal decision but then in that six months off, just ended up spending a lot more time reading about um, industrial animal agriculture and just got very passionate about the idea of helping to contribute to ending it. Uh, and so that led me to um, thinking through the best way I could go about achieving that um, and, and figured if I can help people reduce their meat consumption by producing delicious, healthy meat alternatives um, made from plants and mushrooms, that, that would be a good way to do it. And so, so co-founded Fable with that objective. That's a really nice, concise summary. I'm curious, how did you get on that train around sort of becoming vegetarian and sort of being more aware of the um, ethical compromise we're making as being meat eaters? Yeah, so I'd, I'd kind of over probably a period of about 10 years, I'd been reducing my meat consumption because I just, I'd read more and more about, uh, you know, how anim- the ethical side, how animals are treated uh, in, in particularly in factory farms. Um, then the environmental impact that uh, that meat has, uh, and then also just the health impacts of eating particularly too much meat, which um, we, we very clearly do in, in Western societies. And so that had led me to sort of reduce my meat consumption. I'd prob- I was probably eating about 30% of the meat that I, that I did growing up. Um, and then in that six months off, I just ended up reading a lot, w- went into depth on it, um, read a whole bunch more books, um, um, actually, the book that originally turned me vegetarian is a really good one called Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that book just kind of lays out the case, lays out the case better than any case I've, I've ever read just for, for going vegetarian. And it just, yeah, it lays out, lays out all the reasons really well, both from that ethical, environmental and health perspectives. And, yeah, that, that book turned me vegetarian. Um, and then... Uh, that's yeah, that's yeah. Uh, powerful for a book to be able to do that. I'm actually quite refreshed that you mentioned Jonathan Safran Foer's book and not just your, your standard Peter Singer because I feel like almost <laughs> everybody goes direct to Peter Singer, effective altruism, uh, aka, uh, therefore, do not, do not anymore eat meat. But that, that's a refreshing yeah. take. Um, And I suppose, were you looking at the time, I mean, is it kind of a natural thing for you to take that change that you made in your own life and for that to be the driving force behind your next um, business venture? Yeah, well, I kind of didn't when, when I went vegetarian. It was it was actually about yeah three years before I ended up starting Fable, and so it certainly wasn't. I was doing a doing shoes of prey. It was a fashion business, um, and yeah, it really had it was going vegetarian was just a purely personal thing. So it was only once I had some more time off, um, finished up with um, shoes of prey, and was thinking about what I wanted to do next, and uh, that, that yeah kind of led me down that path and. It was interesting kind of reflecting back on when I co-founded Shoes of Prey. Um, it wasn't so much, a, yeah, there wasn't kind of a sense of like mission-driven purpose behind it. It was kind of looking for a market opportunity for a startup and, and spotting what I thought was a gap in the market and, and going after that. 
Whereas this time around, yeah, I've very much had the drive to want to do something, you know, kind of good for the world. Um, so something that wasn't just a, you know, entrepreneurial business opportunity. And I actually ended up exploring a few different paths in that six months off. It wasn't just um, going down the plant-based meat path. Um, another angle that I looked at was, um, I think in our society today, we um, there's a lot of loneliness. And I think I think part of that stems from the way we live. Like I think as humans, we evolved living in much more communal structures than we do today. Like the fact we have apartments where we literally live apart from each other and often you may not even know your neighbours who are like a, a metre on the other side of that wall from you. You might even act- actively avoid your neighbours in some cases. Right, exactly. I mean, and it's just it's just odd. That's just not how we evolved. And I think that, you know, that's one, there's, there's many contributors, but I think that's one contributor towards sort of loneliness and depression in our society. So I explored biz- like ways that that could be solved through business. And um, the, the challenge with that path was, uh, although I thought it was a great mission, I just couldn't find a business opportunity in it. Um, you know, I was kind of looking for something, a Venn diagram overlap of um, something mission and purpose driven with something where you can leverage kind of capitalism, business and entrepreneurship. Yeah, that, that's my background. But where you can leverage that to do something good for the world. And so I, I didn't see it in that community structure, but I found it in. It's quite a um, fascinating journey. I mean, I like hearing the narrative about you being sort of innately very much a problem solver, entrepreneurial perspective. But when you do get the opportunity to marry that up with actually solving a problem that matters to the world, um, that's very exciting and sort of lends itself to that whole, I guess, new idea of the purpose-driven business, having a, a purpose mindset or approach to, um, to problem solving in a, in, in a way that fits a market need as well. Yeah, and I think for different, uh, you know, for different people, it might be different, th- different things. Like, like in being vegetarian for four and a half years, I'd, you know, tried to convert everyone around me to to being vegetarian, and I think I convinced two people in four and a half years, and I caught up with one of them recently, and he's not even vegetarian anymore. So <laughs> I'm obviously my skill set. I'm obviously not a very good activist. So, um, so figured, yeah, maybe that's not the path for me. But, but yeah, I can. Well, I think there's um there's many different ways to change uh, to to progress social change initiatives. Not everyone has to be the activist it's like that old quip that i really like how do you know if somebody's vegan um you don't need to ask and they'll tell you immediately Uh, (laughs) and it's just sort of like you know there's enough people banging the drum very loudly for social reasons i love seeing a market-driven solution that just solves a problem that you maybe hadn't the right parameters around before and when i look at what you're doing at fable maybe i can get you to sort of go into a bit more detail about what fable is and uh, the name i think is quite good as well and and just um why you've you've chosen mushroom-based products and you've first line being braised beef as well love to hear a bit more about that yeah yeah and i think there's a and i think there's a space in uh, you know for solving this problem of ending industrial animal agriculture i think there's a space there's it's important that there's activists and people pushing that line and then there's yeah i think it's important that there's um um products coming out uh in, that, that help people reduce their meat consumption so yeah the whole kind of premise behind um fable was to i guess in in being vegetarian trying to talk to lots of people about that um in, in my general life realized that yeah it's pretty hard to convert people to stopping eating meat people love the taste and texture of meat and i and i to be honest i found it hard too like i grew up eating steak and beef mince pretty much every night for dinner um so you know that was a big shift for me to to and it took me a long time to cut out my meat consumption before i finally went vegetarian so so i know that's tough um but people i think enough people know that they want to reduce their meat consumption for and, and we can delve more into the reasons but there's enough people out there that 
are aware of those reasons and want to reduce their meat consumption. Um, but it's just, it's got to be easier, easy for them. You know, they don't necessarily want to eat tofu and falafel balls and hemp seed patties. Some people mm-hmm. do, but, but mm-hmm. not everyone. Um, most people crave that taste and texture of meat. So if you can deliver that taste and texture of meat, but in a way that doesn't use animals and, and has all the benefits of eating plants, um, then, then that's a that's a good way to go. So is that did you sort of narrow down to that being the specific problem? Like because I mean there's a whole bunch of problems around getting people to shift from meat to non-meat alternatives, but it seems like the one that keeps popping up is the texture and the taste. Is that kind of like the final frontier for getting people across the line to experiment with a you know primarily vegetarian diet or even reducing meat? Yeah, so I think that I mean the value proposition for people buying food generally, and it's kind of the and and it's the same really in buying meat is number one people love the taste and texture of meat you know we've kind of evolved with that you know, just loving that taste and texture it's, and actually it's a combination of evolution and our culture um, it's kind of built into you know the way we grow up and and, and our, in our society so yeah number one is taste and texture but a very close second is price like you only have to walk into a supermarket and you can just see how you know from all the specials and things on the islands on promotion you can see how price elastic the food category is so price is critically important there's you know no point in bringing out an amazing taste and texture meat alternative if it costs three times as much as totally uh, agree equivalent Totally yep. agree. And I think, you know, I've, I've had, um, I'm a jerky eater myself, or I was, I used to be somebody who loved beef jerky. There's a good brand out there um, that I used to enjoy. But then I found at my local um, organic store, a, a vegetarian alternative, which tasted very good, but was significantly more expensive. And that was sort of, yep. you know, when an innovation actually creates that much jump in price, it, it's no longer a, a good thing for the customer. Yeah, exactly. No, it's a, it, food is a highly price elastic category. You know, there'll be some people willing to pay three or four times the price, but single digit percentage of those who would who would buy it if it was at an equivalent price. So the objective in the meat alternative category is to produce a product that has the the same or better taste and texture than meat. Um, and you know, the cow and the pig, unless you're going to genetically modify them, you can't really change the taste and texture of, of pork or beef. Um, we've kind of done everything we can there already with breeding and feeding them different things. Mm-hmm. Whereas our products, we can continue improving the taste and texture of, uh, of meat alternatives. So the goal is to get to a product that has a better taste and texture than animal meat and then do it at a lower cost than animal meat, ultimately do it at a, at a lower cost. There's um, going to be a lot of... You've done that, there's going to be a lot of really happy cows uh, hearing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 definitely part of the goal. Yeah, because yeah, if you can if you can beat animal meat on taste and texture and beat it on price, and you get all the benefits of it being plant based, but even forgetting the fact that it's plant based, if you just win on those first two, there's just no reason to buy. Well, you're talking um, absolutely win 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 situation. How how does this contrast with the kind of the, the maybe the more publicised um, race to price reduction with lab grown meat? Is that something that you follow closely as well? Yeah, yeah, and there's a there's a really good company in Australia called um, Vow who are uh, who are working on on that, and and I, I invested in their seed round. I'm I'm a big believer in what they're doing too. I mean, I think this this challenge of solving uh, helping to end industrial animal agriculture, we've got to attack it from from as many angles as we can. Um, so I think that's a good path. Um, you know, realistically, it's going to take longer to commercialise than plant based alternatives. So you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a very big believer in plant-based alternatives and that's why I've thrown my, myself kind of headfirst into it. Um, but I think lab-grown meat's got a, got a got good potential as well. Um, 
Can we talk a bit about why mushrooms? I think mushrooms is an obvious choice because it's very kind of meaty and people always describe mushroom as being quite meaty. But what about other stuff? Like did you think or are you thinking much about things like jackfruit and eggplants? Because I love the taste of both of them and this isn't me trying to be the, the customer telling the company what to do. I'm just sort of making some insights about vegetables that I really enjoy that sort of strike me as also quite meaty. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're spot on with why we chose mushrooms. Um, uh, firstly, well, firstly, they're very healthy. Uh, they're a very healthy food. Um, in Australia, we eat 2.3 kilograms of mushrooms per person per year. Um, in Asian societies, it varies by country, but on average in Asia, they eat 13 and a half kilos of mushrooms per person per year. Wow. So we don't eat, we don't eat that many mushrooms in Australia, and, and we should because they're incredibly healthy, super high in fibre, um, really high in lots of vitamins and minerals. Um, they're, they're, incredib- they're incredibly good for you. And then to your point, um, yes, they've got a lot of those natural umami meaty flavours in them. Um, so they make for a really, really good base for, for meat alternatives. Um, jackfruit, there's some good jackfruit meat alternatives out there. Um, jackfruit, you can, uh, before the fruit is ripe, you can shred it and you get a good sort of stringy, slow-cooked meat texture, but it doesn't have, it's a fruit, it doesn't have the yeah. kind of umami flavours in it. Um, and then eggplant, uh, there's some potential in eggplant, but, yeah, not 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 the same potential that there is in mushrooms. So, um yeah, so that's kind of why we went down the path of mushrooms. Well, that's really well explained. It also perfectly illustrates why you shouldn't listen to customers too much, which may, maybe <laughs> makes me want to pivot slightly backwards and just talk a little bit about the Shoes of Prey. And, I mean, it's sort of well-publicized, um, you know, that that didn't quite work out. And part of the reason for that was that that big gap, when you listen to customers and they tell you what they think they want, it's often different to what uh, purchase behavior they exhibit after that. Uh, maybe get you to just comment on that and talk about how that's informed how you've approached future challenges. Yeah, so so for those who don't know Shoes of Prey, um, it was a custom women's shoe business. So you could go online, design your own shoes. Um, we'd make them and deliver them to you. And over sort of 10 years, we um, we raised $35 million in capital. We built our own shoe factory in China. Sort of had 210 employees at our at our peak in, in Australia and China and the US. Um, we'd expanded into Nordstrom and, and elsewhere. And then, yeah, ultimately the business, uh, we had ended up having to close the business down. We'd done, to answer your specific question, we'd done really well in this niche early in the early years. We'd done really well in this niche of women who were very passionate about designing their own shoes and, um, yeah, that customer loved what we were doing. Um, but we had all these customers coming to our website who weren't purchasing and when we spoke to them and you know, ran surveys and focus groups, um, we realised these were mass market customers um, and when we talked to them, they loved the idea of designing their own shoes but... Um, they told us three things. They, they said, we would love to design our own shoes, but we want it to be simpler. Um, the shoe design process, we need you to simplify that. Um, secondly, they wanted uh, less than two-week turnaround time, and at the time we were averaging about five weeks. And then thirdly, they didn't want to pay a premium for it. We were charging about 30% more than the, for the same quality shoe. And that creative customer, she was, she was happy with those, uh, those trade-offs, but the mass market consumer wasn't. So we looked at that and we said, well, yeah, we, we can deliver on that. We can, we can hire software engineers and simplify the and user experience people and simplify the shoe design experience. We can go and build our own factory and develop the processes to bring the lead times down and the unit costs down. Um, and so we went out and raised capital to do that, did partnerships with David Jones in Australia and Nordstrom in the US and over, over sort of took us five years um, to get everything up and, up and running for that, the value proposition right for that mass market consumer based on what she told us. Um, but when we delivered that, uh, we grew sort of four or five X our revenue over the five years. It was good growth, but it was nowhere near what we needed to get to and nowhere near what it should have been based on 
the number of mass market customers coming to our website and the feedback that they'd given. And so now we could, we'd actually built the value proposition. We could watch how consumers behaved. And what we realized that mass market consumer, she, if you ask her, she thinks she wants to customize, like genuinely she thinks that she wants to, but deep down subconsciously, she doesn't have the confidence to do it. She really just wants to see what's popular in fashion magazines and on Instagram and buy not only that design, but, but even that brand of shoe. Um, but that's, this is all subconscious. She can't necessarily articulate that because it's not, not conscious. And your subconscious is more powerful than the conscious part of your mind. And so she wasn't buying. And, and we, could on, we only really identified this. We didn't identify this in our market research, which was a failing on our part. Um, we were only able to identify it once we built the value proposition, delivered it to the customer and could watch how she behaved. I mean, it's, it's interesting because in a way you can't conduct an artificial experiment and it's, it's kind of superfluous to ask people what they will do if you do X, Y, and Z in future because, you know, uh, judge me um, on what I do, not what I say kind of applies very strongly exactly. here. I wonder exactly. how that sort of um, informed, you know, with Fable, did you kind of, you know, take that in mind? Because, you know, my inclination would be that you'd maybe survey a whole bunch of people, do some research around, you know, what it would take for people to switch from meat to, to your product. Um, and did you fear that kind Kind of situation you know recurring or what, what did you do differently <laughs> i mean that fear kept me up at night for, i'm sure for months yeah. early on in the life of fable um yeah i mean the ultimate is to be able to watch how consumers behave rather than asking them that that was one big learning for me out of shoes of prey the challenge for us with shoes of prey was no one had built that value proposition before like we were the first people to do custom design women's fashion shoes online and so we couldn't watch anyone's behavior until we built it um and, and that's a challenge of going first in a market um, the difference with Fable is that there are other good meat alternatives out on the market. Um, you know, I've been living in Los Angeles for four, the last four years of Shoes of Prey and I've been eating the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger and then um, moved to Europe for six months um, that, that I took off uh, after Shoes of Prey and been eating all the European alternatives. So um, I could watch how consumers behaved and what they did with those products. And then when I came back to Australia and started Fable, um, I literally spent weeks in Coles and Woolworth stores watching how consumers shopped the meat alternative section. Like I, I would watch what products they picked up and put back on the shelf. I'd watch what pick, products they picked up and put in their shopping basket or trolley and walked out with. And then I'd creepily go up and ask them afterwards, you know, why did you put that product down? And you know, oh, you, you do that? You literally and go and ask them? Yeah, I'd do it after I'd watch their behavior. That's so awesome. I could see what they had done. And then went and asked them specific questions. As so you basically uh, turned the Whole Foods into your laboratory, your research laboratory. It was a live laboratory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Which I hadn't been able to do for Shoes of Prey, but um, but yeah, yeah. I think the the fear of getting my market research wrong again um, prompted me to go and spend a lot of time doing that for in the lead up to Fable, and that kind of helped define too the the mushroom angle, the you know all natural ingredients, minimally processed, whole food based you know, wanting to get a really, really healthy, natural uh, meat alternative. It's interesting. I mean, you know, talking very much on the health end here, which I think is good. Earlier in the year or even middle of last year, we saw at the same time Hungry Jacks, McDonald's, Grilled and a whole bunch of other outlets introduced meat-free options. And I think it's the Beyond Burger that they were using. And I tried that. I really enjoyed it. I'm always looking for new ways to cut down my own meat consumption, but found it to be pretty expensive, especially getting an extra patty. And also um, started to become quite concerned with what uh, ingredients were in those patties. Because when you looked at the fine print, there are a lot more kilojoules and calories associated with that shift away from meat. What do you have to say about that and how does that sort of inform how you, how you do the Fable products? 
Yeah, so I mean, I think there's there's definitely a place for for those products. Like if if uh, take my own shopping behavior for example, so an eating behavior. So if I'm out wanting a fast food burger, I'm not thinking about you know a healthy meal. I'm going for a convenient, correct, tasty fast food meal. So yep. in that environment, I'm you know I'm happy to eat a eat a uh, you know I used in my meat eating days I would be eating a Hungry Jack's meat burger and you know, a Whopper and yep. Whopper with cheese and they're not exactly the healthiest things to begin with. Um, so yeah, subbing out, I think they're subbing out the meat for a meat alternative. And, mm. you know, most, most of the meat alternatives are based on textured vegetable protein. You know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, not a, it's, it's a reasonably healthy um, base ingredient. Um, you know, I don't think it's as healthy as mushrooms, but it's a, it's a reasonably healthy base ingredient. And I think it's, you know, overall on, on all the everything I've read, I think it, those products are actually healthier than uh, eating beef, particularly sort of fairly fatty fast food burger beef. Um, so that's when I'm when I'm in the fast food environment. That's how I think. Um, but then I, you know, I also do a lot of my cook, own cooking at home. Um, I shop at my local farmers markets on the Sunshine Coast and try to buy sort of local organic produce, uh, bake my own sourdough, brew my own kombucha. So when I'm in that environment, I'm definitely focused on ingredient lists and trying to eat a really healthy diet. Um, and so for me, yeah, I, I don't cook with a lot of textured vegetable protein-based uh, products at home. Um, and so that was kind of the the insight that sort of led to using mushrooms as a base. I wanted a more natural, healthy, whole food base for a meat alternative. That's what I wanted personally. Yep. And talking to consumers in Coles and Woolworths, I'd say about 40% of the people that I spoke with made some comment around wanting, you know, less processing, um, healthier, healthy, really healthy meat alternatives. The most common reason people give for wanting to reduce their meat consumption is health. Um, and so, yeah, wanted to deliver a really health healthy product in the category. Michael, that's, so, um, that's really a terrific explanation, especially what you said there around um, health and sort of less processing. I think that for me, uh, those two points are really critical is that, and I think what you're offering with Fable is it, that's the base being just mushrooms. That's a lot more dependable than some sort of plant protein where we don't know what else has to happen to make that tasty. Yeah, yeah, and and again, I wouldn't say that the that the other products are necessarily bad, and and I eat them in uh, in that sort of when I'm in that sort of frame of mind, uh, eating out at a at a fast food burger joint. Um, but yeah, for cooking at home, um, that, that's yeah, we wanted to use mushrooms as the base ingredient for for all those health reasons. I've probably well waited. I've probably waited a bit late in the podcast to mention this, but congratulations on the national launch into 600 Woolworth stores nationally. That's huge. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah, yeah, real, a real thrill to get it, get the product out there into into yeah consumers' hands through Woolworths. Yeah, so that's exciting. So your your experiment has gone to a reality. Your product is uh, in in the supermarkets. How much of you do you see as your role as educating the customer here on Fourth versus the customer educating you? What's the trade off there? Because you've got to obviously um, win over a certain chunk of the market to make this viable, but you've already got people out there who want or have an intention to change, but maybe they just need further education to get them there. Yeah, so I think I mean we've designed the product for yeah for that consumer who is reducing meat consumption for health reasons and yeah wants a kind of healthier whole food based alternative, um, and that's not necessarily everyone in the category. So when or shopping the category, so we're not necessarily trying to convert everyone. And, and the first product that we've made is an alternative to slow cooked meats, um, so like pulled pork or braised beef or beef brisket. Um, so yeah, the education that we're doing is um, firstly around you know we focus on this product is delicious. The taste and texture is genuinely good. And it, and it, and it genuinely is. Um, my two co-founders, so Jim Fuller, um, 
grew up in Texas eating all these slow-cooked meats. Uh, he worked as a fine dining chef for 10 years in Texas. Uh, then he wanted to understand the science behind what he was cooking, so he went and studied chemical engineering and agricultural science. He majored in mycology, which is mushroom science, and then he's worked as a mushroom scientist, as a mycologist for the last 12 years. Um, so pretty wild skill set in one human being, a oh, chef, and, chef and a mycologist. Incredible. Um, yeah. and, uh, and then Chris McLaughlin um, co-founded Australia's largest organic mushroom farm. He was Organic Farmer of the Year in Australia in 2018 and Young Farmer of the Year in 2018. Um, and so, yeah, he's got a really strong agricultural mushroom background. And so, um, yeah, in developing the product, number one was taste and texture. We wanted to replicate those sort of Texan slow-cooked meats like beef brisket braised beef and pulled pork and so yeah big to answer your question a bit of a big part of the education for consumers is showing people that this product can taste or does taste delicious and meaty and you can use it in all of the same dishes that you would use those slow cooked meats so you know lots of imagery around you know delicious uh pulled pork burgers uh delicious pies um uh it's great in curries bolognese ragu lasagnas you know all, all of those kinds of uh uh delicious meaty dishes so a big part of it is around educating people and showing people that the taste and texture um, is great um, and then the second piece uh, that we do is yeah focusing on education around around mushrooms and we try to the mushroom piece is interesting for us because Australians don't eat a lot of mushrooms um, a lot of Australians you talk to them and their natural their kind of first response around mushrooms is oh, I don't really like mushrooms um, and so we want to be we, we're conscious in our communication of when we talk about taste and texture, um, we focus on the meatiness of the product, but then when we're talking about health, um, that's when we talk up the health benefits of of mushrooms. And yeah, Chris and Jim have got that that got that both food and mushroom background to be able to help with all of that. You got a great team. So were you thinking very much when you brought that team together to have um, that kind of diversity of the experience? Because it sort of seems like that's a real winner for you guys. Yeah, so we we came together last year. Chris and Jim had been working together at Chris's mushroom farm previously, um, and they'd actually started doing some work on some mushroom meat alternatives. Um, and at the same time, I'd moved back to Australia, started exploring the category, and it sort of settled on wanting to do a do meat alternatives made from mushrooms. So we'd, we were separately on those journeys, and then um, a few different people introduced. Probably five different people said to us hey, you guys need to meet. Like, Michael, you're exploring mushrooms as a meat alternative. You've got this business background. Chris and Jim have got this yeah, agricultural chef science background and they're exploring mushroom meat alternatives. You, you, you guys need to need to meet up. So it was kind of funny. We, we met up. We agreed to meet up. They're based in Melbourne. I'm in Queensland. I was down for a trip in Melbourne. We met up at a coffee shop at 3 p.m. Uh, one afternoon and we'd all, we'd all agreed we'd keep the afternoon and the evening free in our calendars so that if the meeting, you know, if the meeting didn't work out, we'd just have coffee and go our separate ways. Um, and if it did work out, we could spend the rest of the afternoon and evening together. And yeah, we got on like a house on fire, all, all very much on the same page with, you know, what we want to achieve um, in the category and uh, very complementary skill sets. So, um, so yeah, it's been it's been great. That's awesome. And so this is going to sound a bit funny, but how much extracurricular mushroom um, interest do you have? Because I know there's a whole field out there of mycology and Paul Stamets and, you know, a whole bunch of people yeah. doing work and maybe not many people know, but I think up to 60% of um, modern medicines um, come from the mushroom. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of goodness happening in the mushroom world that's um, not, not just in the eating, but um, do you pay attention to a lot of the research and is it sort of part of the, the value proposition with, you know, people eating more mushrooms? 
Yeah, very much so. I mean, from a personal level, I'm still I'm still learning. Um, but Jim and Chris, uh, I mean, they live and breathe mushrooms and everything about mushrooms. Um, you know, they everything from they're both just fully hooked on fungi. Everything from growing it to uh, cooking it to eating it to foraging. We ran some fabled foraging tours um, uh, earlier this year. Um, yeah, they're they're hundred percent. And mushrooms is very much core to what we're doing, Jim. Jim makes these uh, kind of uh, mushroom uh, capsules that we all take and he ferments different mushrooms together. So, you know, kind of good for your health and, and your brain. I think that might have helped us um, get ramped up faster than we might have otherwise. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so very I, much. I have, uh, to, um, have to keep you on the line afterwards and uh, arrange some mushroom hookup. It sounds incredible. <laughs> uh, yeah, obviously, yeah, all yeah. street legal, all street legal. Exactly. Um, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you, you're also working with Startmate. You're an investor and, and advisor. When you're, um, you've invested in a whole bunch of startups, when you're thinking about what you're going to start as your next business venture, is there a sort of tight feedback loop between how you think as an investor to being a founder yourself? Do, would you kind of use the same mindset and skills and the same considerations apply? It's uh, a good question. Um, yeah, let me think about that. I suppose for my for my own kind of personal side of things, as we kind of touched on before, I wanted to do something um, mission driven and good for the world that I was personally passionate about doing, coupled with a really good kind of yeah the Venn diagram overlap with that and where there was a good business opportunity, so so that I could I could leverage business and entrepreneurship capitalism to achieve it. Um, for in Startmate. Um, I mean, I naturally do gravitate to the businesses that do have a strong mission focus, and I think it's um, I think I, I think it's important for two reasons. So, firstly, just just in my own experience, having done Shoes of Prey, you know, Shoes of Prey, I was very passionate about what we're doing, but there wasn't that kind of mission piece behind it. Um, and I also that was one one piece, and then the second piece. Um, I didn't wear women's shoes and I wasn't personally passionate about the product. I was passionate about every other aspect of the business, but the product was one area that, that I wasn't. And I think, and if I'm honest with myself, I think that also made it harder for me to get into the mind of the consumer. And so that when we're doing our consumer research to really thoroughly understand what that consumer was thinking about. Whereas when I think about Fable, um, I'm very mission-driven in the space. You know, if money didn't matter, this is what I would want to be doing anyway. Um, I wake up on a Saturday morning and I just want to read. I'm reading a book, The Art of Fermenting at the moment, and I am just just live and breathe this space and this category, whereas I didn't wake up on a Saturday morning reading fashion magazines. Um, and then so the mission piece makes me more motivated and driven, which I think increases the probability of success of the business. Um, and then secondly, because I am this customer and I love this category and I live and breathe it as a consumer, um, I think it gets my head in the mindset of the consumer more, which helps. So to answer your question, when um, the businesses that I gravitate to through Startmate or, or the ones that I find myself engaging with more are the ones where the founder is very mission-driven on solving this problem and has a deep personal connection to the problem um, because I think just in my own experience, I think those two things help improve the probability of success of that startup. Terrific points. I want to sort of end by asking you, I mean, you look like somebody whose mind never stops, quite frankly. You're busy on many fronts. <laughs> you, you seem to have a very um, active intellectual mind and investor mind. So I want to know a bit more about how you learn and if you can recommend maybe any books that you're currently reading, uh, podcasts you're listening to or resources generally that have helped you lately. Yeah, good, good question. Um, 
uh, read a very good book called um, Principles recently, and I've forgotten the name. Ray Dalio? Of the author. Yeah, it's Ray Dalio. That's the one. Um, I thought that was a fantastic book. I love how he thinks about problems and works through problems, and uh, yeah, I've been trying to adopt more of uh, more of his thought processes. Um, podcasts. Uh, I think there's a lot of good podcasts out there. I, I love yours for the yeah, kind of delving into the mission behind what people are doing. Um, I think that's that's really important, and I hope more people uh, in society um, think that way and look to yeah, look to do things that they're driven by mission wise. Um, I think that's good for the world, and and it's good for good for people as individuals to work on something that they're passionate about. Um, what else? I think um, there's lots of really good uh, podcasts out in the. I, I, I do really love the tech startup space um, and all the podcasts and blogs and people to follow on Twitter in that space. Um, I think there's a lot of time invested uh, in that category, in that sort of world around how to think logically through problems. Um, and so I, I try to yeah. Well, I won't, I, won't, um, I won't make you name any specifically. So maybe if people want to connect with you or learn more about your work, they could also see what you're doing on Twitter because I think that's yeah, where a lot exactly. of the, your yeah. interests uh, line up together. Yeah, go have a look at who I follow on Twitter because that is a good that is a good source of um, inspiration for me. Yeah, I mean, the, a good podcast too actually is the, the Blackbird Ventures uh, Wild Hearts podcast that launched fairly recently. Oh, terrific. Uh, Blackbird Ventures are a good VC in Australia. That's that's that, If you want a specific one, that's that's well worth a listen. Yeah. Michael, how can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Um, yeah, so Twitter is good. Um, my username is at uh, Michael Fox with three M's. Uh, um, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, uh, those are probably the best places. Um, and then for Fable specifically, um, we're at Fable Food Co. on Instagram and FableFood.co on the web. Yep, and so we'll just end by telling people to get to your local Woolworths and pick up a packet of braised beef and get involved and sort of see what it's like to take a step outside your comfort zone or maybe try something you wouldn't have before and uh, be blown away by the by the power of the mushroom. <laughs> That's it. No, thanks, Mike. <laughs> can, I do, can I do all Great your pitch. advertisement reads from now yeah, on? Yeah, <laughs> that was an awesome one. Yeah, yeah, you're hard. <laughs> that was, that was uh, awful. I'm sorry if I butchered that in any way, but I am excited to try your product. So thanks for being with us today. <laughs> No worries. Thanks, Mike. Uh, one thing I was thinking that we could, if you can edit in, could be good to go into is um, we touched on it, but uh, a bit more detail on the reasons for going vegetarian. So for me, the kind of four primary reasons for going vegetarian. Um, so firstly, on the personal health front, um, there's a whole bunch of uh, academic literature on the benefits of eating a plant-based diet. And just to give one specific example, um, bowel cancer is the third most common cancer in Australia. Um, you literally don't get bowel cancer if you eat a plant-based diet. It's clearly um, correlated to, to eating meat. Um, and in Australia, we, we eat too much meat. The average Australian eats 110 kilograms of meat per person per year. Um, in Asian societies, the average is 20 kilograms of meat per person per year. And from a purely health perspective, um, there's a good case for eating no meat. Um, but at the very least, we should be eating not 110 kilos of meat, eating something more like 20 kilograms of meat per person per year. So that's the health side. Um, from an environmental perspective, um, it, Animal agriculture is responsible for 13.5% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. It's more than all of transport combined. So we could electrify all the cars, trains, buses, planes, ships in the world, and that wouldn't have as much impact as if we all stopped eating meat. Um, and there's two reasons that uh, that is that 
13.5% figure is so high. Um, firstly, it's, uh, it's it actually primarily comes from um, animals need to eat the, the, a lot of plant matter to produce meat. So a pig, for example, needs to eat eight kilograms of plant matter to produce one kilogram of pork. For a cow, the ratio is about 12 to one. And most of the world's meat now is factory farmed. So you've got pigs in factory farms or you've got cows in feedlots uh, and those animals, crops need to be grown to feed those animals. So more than half of the world's crops now are grown not to be fed to humans, but to be fed to animals to in turn be fed to humans. And that creates massive inefficiencies in land use. So 47.5% of the world's habitable landmass is devoted to animal agriculture. 47.5% of the world's habitable landmass. So if we stopped eating meat, we'd need to eat more plants, but we could convert, uh, the sort of stats are around 30 to 35% of the world's habitable landmass could go back to being forested. Um, and there's some data, um, there's a Rethink X report on the future of food, and that report goes into some details on, take the continent of North America. If they stopped eating meat in North America, um, they could reforest 30 to 35% of the North American landmass. Even if they didn't reduce their carbon emissions anymore, the carbon capture from reforesting all that land would make North America carbon neutral. So we could solve the climate crisis by stopping eating meat and converting all this land back to back to forest. Um, so that's some of the environmental issues. Then you've also got the ethical issues around the treatment of animals. I mean, this was a big one for me personally, just having pets when I was growing up, having a pet dog. You know, we would do anything to look after our dog, take it to the vet. It was a member of the family. Um, pigs are just as intelligent as dogs, um, yet we treat pigs horrifically. Um, even more in, in factory farming environments, even more extreme is fish. Every fish that we cap kill to eat dies by asphyxiation, gets pulled out of the water and dies from the equivalent of drowning. And, you know, if I took a puppy right now and drowned it in front of you, you'd I hope you'd call the police and get me, and I'd, get, I'd literally get carted off to jail for that. Um, why do we treat dogs like that and, and we treat pigs and fish so differently? Like it doesn't make any logical sense. There's an emotional reason. We live with dogs and we emotionally connect with dogs. Pigs in a factory farm, you know, we don't see them. We just see the plastic packets of meat that come out the other end and it's, and it's even we relate to fish even less. You know, we can go out and catch a fish and let it drown and we can't communicate with it. We don't really properly appreciate what it's going through when it's, you know, the pain it's going through when it's dying. It, so there's an emotional reason, but it is a, it's not logical at all why we treat animals differently like that. So that kind of thought exercise um, was a really big one for me in going vegetarian. I just think that makes no sense whatsoever. Can't, I can't justify eating meat once I think about that. Um, and then the fourth reason is uh, pandemics. So um, uh, you know, there's still in research and investigations going on on the source of the COVID pandemic and, and virus, um, but it's potentially come from um, bats in a, uh, in a sort of meat market in China. Um, other thing, uh, viruses that have become close to being pandemics, so swine flu and bird flu that we had a couple of years ago, um, those both evolved in the swine, swine flu evolved in pig factory farms uh, bird flu evolved in uh, chicken factory farms. And the issue there is you get one species of animal all crammed in a small, tight environment. Um, it's a perfect breeding ground for viruses and bacteria. Um, they evolve rapidly. They breed. Um, you know, 
uh, animals in factory farms often need to be fed antibiotics, otherwise they have to have that in their feed, otherwise they die. Um, and so it's a perfect breeding ground for these viruses and bacteria. And um, yeah, the World Health Organization has said there's a 50% chance that within the next 50 years, a illness pandemic evolves in factory farms that kills 50 million people. You know, I think we've, in a sense, gotten lucky with COVID that it wasn't more, uh, didn't have a higher mortality rate. Um, you know, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty easy for people to catch it. Its transmission rates are high, but its mortality rate's not that high. Um, you know, we're, we're playing Russian roulette um, if we keep increasing uh, factory farming. Um, you know, there's going to be a, another disease that involves, evolves and causes um, irreparable harm. So, yeah, for me, four good reasons why I went uh, vegetarian and, to be honest, should probably be vegan. I'm, I'm almost vegan, just haven't quite, haven't quite made it there. That's awesome, Michael. Thanks for that. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 